Well, again, if you would, uh, take out your Bible and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And today we'll be looking at verses 25 through 32. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion. They may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord will remain forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, O God, that you would help us to understand it. Be with this, your servant, that as the word is preached and explained and applied, that you would protect the words of my mouth. And pray that for our own hearts, that as we take this in and digest this word, that we would be impacted, affected on our, on our hearts, that we may walk with you in a way that is pleasing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in my experience, which is by no means exhaustive, Christians often want the particulars on how to live a godly life, but they don't always want the principles. As a preacher, I've been told on uh, numerous different occasions something like this. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Just tell me the rules. Just tell me what I need to do, to, what, do I, what do I need to follow, and then I'll do that. Now, no one here has said this to me yet. But perhaps you thought it. Perhaps you've wished that the Bible would just give us a set of do's and don'ts. There's a sense that each of us have to one degree or another contend towards a kind of legalism and moralism. Sometimes it seems like maybe it would just be easier if it was just, just give me the rules and I'll follow it. Well, today as we come to our study in Ephesians, Paul gives some practical exhortation on how a Christian ought to live. Principles, as it were, for Christian living. 
What it means to live a holy and righteous life after the image of God. Now in our previous section, which we looked at last week, Paul had exhorted the Ephesians to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, we need to keep this in mind. And this is just reminding us of of ground we've covered already in Ephesians. But it needs to be kept in mind that the Christian is one who has been transformed in their hearts and minds, having been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and living by faith in Him. If you are in Christ, then you have been radically transformed inwardly. We didn't come to this by walking in the ways of the world. We're not in union with Christ so that we can turn to the ways of sin and wickedness. The ways of the unredeemed. Those in Christ are to be holy because God is holy. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ. And since this is the case, there are principles for living which we ought to seek to follow in our lives. And so the Apostle Paul draws out some specific things. Things like speaking the truth, dealing with our anger, no longer stealing, how we speak to others, putting away all kinds of evil because these sins grieve the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now, again, keep in mind, too, that this is all in the context of the grace of God which has been poured out on you. We are saved by grace through faith. And so these are the responses, again, of the believer. And so we pick our study up in verse 25. And Paul moves from a general exhortation, which is really what we looked at last week, to the particulars. And he begins with speaking the truth. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, For we are members one of another. Because the Christian is one who has been saved by faith, he is to cast off the old self, that that man of sin, like one would put away a filthy garment. And taking off involves the putting aside of sin, that sin which continues to cling to us. So Paul lists five specific areas of sin which the believer is to put off. And his first one is falsehood. Or, to put it in the positive, the Christian is to tell the truth. To be honest. Beloved, a lifestyle of falsehood, of speaking untruths, or of bearing false tales, is contrary to your Christian confession. This is to be put away. This is to be fought against. The Christian ought to have a character which is marked by a life of honesty. Now, this is what is interesting about this being listed first is that it is often the case that we are dishonest when we're trying to hide other sins. Isn't isn't that true? 
Truly confessing sin means that we are, first of all, honest about it. We are to speak the truth to ourselves. We are to speak the truth to the Lord. And we are to speak the truth to our neighbor. Now, who is our neighbor, though? Well, our neighbor is anyone in proximity to us whether it be physically or otherwise. It could be online, it could be on the phone, it could be in a letter, or it could be face-to-face. If you are interacting with anyone in any way, then that person is your neighbor. All fellow image bearers, regardless of race, creed, ethnicity, national origin, these are our neighbors. You and I owe the truth to our fellow human beings. And so if honesty with all people is in view, how much more is this critical toward our fellow believers? Few things can destroy the unity of the church more than dishonesty. Dishonesty within the body. It's like like a cancer which destroys the church. Each of us as believers in Jesus Christ should continually and regularly speak the truth to your fellow Christians. Because we are members one of another, Paul says. Our unity in Christ, then, is the grounds of our honesty. Because we are united as one body in Christ, with Christ as our head. And so we should be honest with one another. We are to speak the truth in love. Truth-telling and love involves saying hard things at hard times. And sometimes to hard people. Lovingly. Winsomely. Telling the truth. Telling the truth is at the same time the hardest thing you may have to do and the easiest. A Christian is to speak the truth. Even when it's inconvenient. Even when it's embarrassing. Even when it may mean the loss of face, status, relationships, finances, or whatever loss you may experience. This is how important the truth is. And ultimately the body cannot be unified without the truth. Think about this another way. We are, we are a body united together. With Christ as our head. Now imagine your own body. Imagine your foot deciding that it was going to try to deceive your hand. Well, Pastor, that's ridiculous. I mean, how would that even work, right? That would be that would be unnatural. Well, so is lying within the body of Christ. It is a violation of the very nature of union with one another to be dishonest. Lying and deception has no place in the covenant community. And so our first instruction for Christian living that Paul gives is this. Having put away falsehood, let us speak the truth with our neighbor. Now next on our list is anger. Now we need to understand that anger in and of itself is not what is in view. Paul is not saying, don't ever be angry. This is not what he's saying. In fact, it says, be angry. 
be angry, and do not sin. You see, there is such a thing as righteous anger. In fact, there's things you should be angry about. Anger in and of itself is not inherently wrong. In fact, God gets angry. We should be angry over the things which offend God. We should be angry over sin. Jesus was angry when he saw the temple being used as a den of robbers. And he fashioned a whip and drove out the money changers. There is a righteous anger that the Christians can experience. But even our righteous anger can morph into a sinful anger, can't it? fact is, most of the time when you and I are angry, it's not even righteous anyway. Most of our anger does not come from a heart of righteous indignation, but rather our anger normally, or most normally, sadly, comes from a heart of selfishness. Our motives usually are not pure, if we're honest about our anger. Nevertheless, the Christian can rightly be angry, but we're not to sin in our anger. Here Paul is drawing on Psalm 4.4. In Psalm 4.4, the psalmist says this, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed. Be silent. So on this teaching of anger, what can we glean? What, What can we glean from this teaching? Well, I think there's three principles here. That we can consider. First of all, that we don't allow our anger to be an occasion for sin. Second principle is don't cherish your anger. And third, don't give Satan an open door to your heart. So although anger in and of itself is not necessarily a sin, anger which is uncontrolled or has selfish motivations is sin. And is a danger to your soul. This is why Jesus warned in Matthew 5.22 that everyone who is angry with his brother should be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That's pretty serious. There may be times where you should be angry. But most of the time, you don't need to be. But if you do, if you are angry, it is for the right reasons, then don't allow that to lead you to sin. Someone might have cut you off in traffic. Typical place where we get angry, right? We get angry in our cars. Maybe you got cut off. What they did was dangerous to you and others. Getting upset is natural. This person is doing dangerous things. It might kill somebody. But seeking to teach them a lesson in return, that's sinful. That is the opposite of being self-controlled. Don't allow your anger to control you and thus become sin. You can be angry about sin, even sin which has been committed against you, but don't allow your anger to cause you to sin against them in return. Not only do we need to exercise restraint when it comes to our anger, but the second principle is this, we're not to cherish our anger. 
We are not to allow the sun to go down on it. Now what does this mean? What does it mean not to let the sun go down on my anger? Does this mean that, you know, if I get sinned on against in the morning, well, boy, i got all day to let that stew, right? As long as I'm done with it by the time the sun goes down. Is that what it means? Of course, that's ridiculous, right? That's not the point. In fact, that would be to miss the point. It means that you and I need to do everything we can to be reconciled as quickly as possible. Don't let it drag on and on. Don't cherish your anger. Now you might ask, who would cherish their anger? I mean, it's kind of, it seems kind of silly, right? Who loves being angry? Who wants to be mad? You and I do, don't we? Sometimes. You ever had someone who's offended you? I mean, you're angry with them. What they've done is really wrong, and you are offended. You're angry, and you're hurt, and then they go and repent really quickly. Man, they are sorry. But here's the thing you're not ready to forgive them. How dare you repent so quickly? In fact, their repentance took away the opportunity for you to be mad. Now, to be clear, it is not wrong to be hurt. It's not wrong to allow for some perspective and healing to occur. But it is wrong to cherish your anger. It is wrong to wallow in self-righteousness. If you've been offended, then labor as much as you're able to be reconciled to your brother and sister. Forgive. Move towards the person if you're able. Now, understand, to, to, to add a little nuance to this, understand that I'm not talking about situations of, of abuse or, or where the other person is a danger to you. I'm speaking in general terms here. We're, we're talking about general principles. And every situation doesn't require immediate reconciliation. But all cases do require us not to cherish our anger, even when it's justified. Don't allow the sun to go down on your anger. By the way, this is why we ought to be slow to anger. Consider the wisdom of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7 9. He says, do not, uh, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Don't, don't have a short fuse. Don't be quick to anger. For anger lodges in the hearts of fools. You see, the problem with anger is that it can get stuck in your heart. Get lodged there. When you love anger, when you love to hold it over against others, and you cherish that, that anger is just going to lodge in your heart. Reconcile quickly, if you're able But if that is not possible, then seek to have your heart unburdened of animosity by committing it to the Lord. But do not avenge yourself. Romans 12, 19 says, leave it to the wrath of God. Listen, nursing your own wrath and keeping it warm. You have this wrath and you're you're caring for it. You've got to keep it going. It's destructive. 
is destructive to the Christian's life. It's destructive to your own heart. To do so magnifies the grievance, makes reconciliation more difficult, destroys relationships, produces greater strife, sows discord among brothers and sisters. All of which leaves the door open for Satan, who is more than pleased to wreak havoc in the church. You see, the glowing embers of anger, which we may nurse and cherish and try to keep going, those, those glowing angers allows the door of division and destruction to, to, by the devil. Great harm has come to the church over the years through the sinful anger of Christians who were convinced that they were right. Don't allow the devil to have inroads into your own heart and into the body of Christ. Next, on our list of exhortations for Christian living, verse 28, theft. Let the thief no longer steal. Now, this thing's pretty straightforward, right? People who are thieves come to faith, stop, stop stealing. I mean, after all, the Christian is one who has taken off the old self and put on the new. And perhaps, you know, you read this, let the thief no longer steal, and you think, ah, this is not me. I'm not a thief. But notice, Paul's not talking about former thieves. He is speaking to those who continue to steal. In fact, there's nothing former about them. The word thief here is a Greek participle, kleptone, from which we get the word kleptomaniac. Literally, it is one who steals. The implication is that this person is still, even now, stealing. They are, in fact, a thief. And so this begs the question, how can Paul assume that there are thieves in the church in Ephesus? I mean, things are bad, perhaps, but are they really that bad? Are we to understand that there are active members of the church of Jesus Christ who are living a life of crime? This would be scandalous, wouldn't it? What Paul has in mind here are not those who make their living as thieves and robbers. He's not talking about bank robbers and car thieves. What he's talking about is anyone who unjustly takes that which is not theirs. He's not addressing some kind of big scandal within the body, but a small one, the small ways in which you and I sin every day. Because if you are taking things from others which don't belong to you, then you're stealing. You're a thief. It doesn't matter if it's just a pen from work, a quarter out of the kitty drawer, or any other way you may take something that doesn't belong to you. It doesn't matter how small the thing is. If you are taking that which is not yours, then the Bible says you're a thief. And so Paul is urging the members of the church to stop. Of course, this is, this is basic stuff. I mean, the Ten Commandments are clear in this regard. Thou shalt not steal. But again, Paul doesn't leave us with just the negative. You know, he doesn't just say, you know, take off the old self, stop being a thief. But he also gives us the positive, the, the putting on the new self. He says, instead of stealing, we're to labor doing honest work with our own hands. 
So instead of taking from others, the Christian is called to work, to make things, to build things, to, to labor, to earn money in whatever way God calls us to for a purpose. Look what it says. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is the purpose of our work. Instead of taking from others unjustly, we should work so that we can give generously to help others. The grace of generosity is part and parcel of the Christian life. We're called to be generous. We're called to work so that we can be generous. Next, the Christian is called to take control of his tongue. Look at verse... Or well, James one twenty six tells us, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now, we had seen this some earlier in regard to the use of the truth. We're to be honest, we're to speak the truth. But we're not only to watch our mouths in regard to lying, as was said earlier, but also in our corrupting talk. This is literally foul, rank, rotten, or putrid speech. This is speaking in ways that do not build up, but in fact tear down. They're corrupting. So what kind of language do you use? Do you use language which is putrid or foul? Do you use language which is injurious to others? Are you offending others in your speech patterns? Does your speaking to others build them up or tear them down? How do you speak about people? Those who have been bought by the blood of Christ ought to speak differently in the world. Now, you know, someone might say like, oh, but, but I was in the military or I grew up in a really rough neighborhood. So this is how everyone at work talks. This is how everyone at school talks. Well, so What? You're a new creature in Christ, aren't you? Aren't you a a blood-bought son of the King of Kings? Haven't you been transformed by the Holy Spirit of God? Haven't you been had the grace of God poured out on you through Jesus Christ? You mean God can't overcome your background? Sometimes we think that way, don't we? Why do you want to continue with the old dead man of sin? You did not learn Christ so that you could turn back to sinful ways. Paul couldn't be more clear here. Our speech to one another as believers and as fellow image bearers should not include foul language nor speech which tears others down. The words which come from our mouths should be only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The words which leave our lips should be grace-filled words. Guard your tongues, beloved, so that it would give grace and blessing to others, not curses. Our speech patterns ought to be that which is blessing, grace-filled. Because you've had so much grace poured on you through Jesus. 
all of these sins, lying, uncontrolled anger, uncontrolled speech, theft, all of these sins grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Sin causes the Spirit great sorrow. To put it in strictly human terms, sin hurts his heart. God grieves over our sin like a parent grieves over a wayward child. Why? Why why does this grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Because you've been sealed by Him for the day of redemption. You belong to Him. You're You're a child of God. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so just as a temple is sacred, God's people have been made sacred. Anything and everything which profanes the sacred is an offense to God. It grieves Him greatly. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. You have been sealed by Him, sealed for the day of redemption which is to come, which which means that your salvation is sure because you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The, The indwelling Spirit certifies that you and I belong to God in Christ. But when we go on sinning, when we tell our lies, when we commit theft, when we are corrupt in our speech, when we are uncontrolled in our anger, and any other perversion which may come, we profane the name of God because of the Holy Spirit which dwells in us. You and I should treat that which God has made holy with reverence and honor. And when we continue on in a lifestyle of sin and lawlessness, we continue a life of rebellion against God. We're, we're, we're living as if we were still in unbelief. And this causes God great sorrow. It grieves the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was for the purpose of our sin and rebellion that Jesus died. Therefore, since we have been redeemed by Christ, we ought to put to death sin. For this is what a transformed person does. But if someone claims to be a Christian and yet refuses to put death sin, it it does beg the question, are they a believer at all? The writer of Hebrews put it this way. In Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't continue in sin and cause grief to the Holy Spirit. We have to exhort one another as long as it's today, because sin is deceitful. Verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So Paul now summarizes his point with intimately related evils. And you'll notice in this list in verse 31 that each of these sins lead to the next one. 
Bitterness is a figurative term denoting an irritable state of mind that keeps a person in a constant state of animosity. This is how anger that is cherished leads to sin. It becomes bitterness, and it's bitterness you hold on to. Wrath has to do with deep-seated anger, and anger is the passion of anger itself, sort of lashing out at others. And clamor has to do with a kind of shouting or arguing. This is the, the outward manifestation of anger. And finally, slander is the word, same word for blasphemy. And in the context, it has to do with a kind of speech which springs forth out of anger with the intention of causing injury. So you can see how bitterness in the heart leads to the next, to the next, to the next. And the next thing you know, you are, you are trying to hurt somebody. Paul says, put this away. Put sin away. Don't allow your heart to be filled with bitterness, which leads to anger, wrath, clamor, and all kinds of other sins. For this grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Instead, and again Paul gives us the positive, instead we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See, there's a context for all this, isn't there? It's not just, here, follow the rules and do better. It's, you've been forgiven. You have the Holy Spirit. You're empowered to do this. Be kind to one another. Our disposition as Christians ought to be to do good because we're new creatures in Christ. We're to be kind even in the face of unthankfulness. Even when goodness and kindness is not coming our way. This is one of the the great sanctifying uh, aspects of parenthood, right? Often, gratefulness and kindness and thankfulness isn't coming our way from our children, right? we're, We're teaching them that. And yet... We have to be kind and good to them, even when they're not to us. This is true with all of our relationships. The disposition of our heart should be tender. We should show compassion for the sufferings of others. And when we are sinned against, we're to forgive. Freely forgive. Overlooking an offense because Christ has freely pardoned you. The grace and mercy which has been shown on us, undeserving sinners by Christ, through the gift of salvation, ought to be shown then toward others. Often we are like our own children, aren't we? God has shown us such kindness and tenderheartedness. And too often we react in ungratefulness. But we're to show... Forgiveness towards others because God has forgiven us. In fact, this is an expression of our gratefulness. We show gratefulness to God because we are free, freely forgiving others who sin against us. In fact, those who are in Christ ought to be all the more forgiving when they are wronged. Because we have a better understanding of the sinfulness of sin. In Christ, we have been forgiven of sin. It is in Christ that God has given His people redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. 
Because God has forgiven us and has reconciled Himself to us, we too should forgive and be reconciled to others. Well, Paul has been giving us the response of the Spirit-transformed, Spirit-filled and the Spirit-transformed person. The one who is united to Christ. The Christian who has been saved by grace through faith, the finished work of Jesus Christ, is one who is constantly and consistently fighting against sin which remains. This is what we're talking about is the sanctification process. We're talking about the process of dying to sin, of seeking after the righteousness of God. This is the process that we participate in actively. And there are real consequences to this either way, not only for ourselves, but for the unity of the body. And keep in mind that as Christians, we're in union with our Lord. And we are also united one to another as well. And so since this is the case, when a part of the body is not dealing with their sin, then the body as a whole suffers. Well, this is why church discipline is so vital. There are few things which will wreck a church more than not dealing with sin. But the dealing with sin does not begin with the elders. Discipline doesn't start with those who have oversight in the church. It begins with you as an individual. It begins with you disciplining yourself first. It begins with you putting to death sin which remains. It begins with the individual. It continues with those who hold the general office of believer. Who then may call you to account... They may well end up with the church as a whole through the session of the church, or the elders of the church. And by the way, this is following the pattern of Matthew 18. But before it gets there, long before it ever gets there, it begins with you. It begins with you who have the Holy Spirit. Who needs to die to sin actively. Beloved, putting off sin is not just a nice thing to do. Yeah, it sounds pretty... I mean, I'm saved, but that, that sounds pretty good. Maybe I'll get around to it eventually, right? Or, well, that's what really holy people do, right? But, eh, I can't really do that. It's not just something nice to do. It is a vital part of the Christian walk. And it's not something you do alone. Remember, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is grieved by your sin, that Holy Spirit also helps you to put to death sin as well. Therefore, avail yourselves of the means of grace, the word, the sacrament, and prayer. Pray earnestly to the Lord as you have sin which remains in you, that they would be put to death. God did not leave you to yourself. Jesus said that he would be with us always to the end of the age. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's also given us one another. He gave us one another to help spur one another on to godliness in Christ. Beloved, put to death sin which remains in you. Help one another 
as long as it's still today. Encourage one another in godliness. Pray to the Lord. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, these last few weeks particularly, and a week still yet to come, have been, have been hard. These are hard words. Father, as we read this section, as we hear it preached, we are cognizant of the fact that we are sinners. That, 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 that there is sin which clings to us. That we have been dishonest. That we've been angry in sin. We've been thieves. We've, we speak corrupting talk at times. That we don't build one another up. And that in short we've grieved you and your spirit. But we thank you that by the Spirit, as believers in Jesus Christ, whose grace has been poured on us abundantly from the heavenly places, that that Holy Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so with that in mind, we pray, God, that you would help us that your spirit would be working in each of our hearts to put to death the sin which remains in us. Father, sometimes we're wearied by the battle against sin. Sometimes we just want to wave the white flag. Help us to be strengthened against sin. Help us to walk in right, the righteousness of Christ. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Jesus. We cast ourselves at your mercy, O oh God. But we thank you for Jesus who forgives us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and to his glory. Amen.